Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com. And on today's episode, we have a wonderful conversation to share with you with Dr. Alexandra Solomon about her new book, Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. I loved this book. I love Dr. Solomon. She has been a leader in the field of marriage and family therapy for decades. She is on staff at Northwestern University where she teaches a huge seminar called Marriage 101 every year. And she has her own clinical practice. She has woven so much wisdom into the pages of this book about how to own your own sexuality. And you've heard us talk about this on the podcast, how to shift from a performance-based model of sexuality to a deep sense of erotic embodiment where your sexuality is your own to inhabit, to create, to express, and to share with others. That's what this book is all about. It is a beautifully crafted book. Check the show notes page because we have set up an offer for you. Grab your copy of this book. Send us a picture of the receipt or of you holding the book uh, via Instagram or email, and we will send you back a coupon towards our online courses. Uh, multiple X your purchase price of the book so you can be guided by this book and join us in our online community of erotic practice and be guided by us stroke by stroke, step by step as you learn new erotic skills. Yes, check the show notes page for links to this book, to Dr. Solomon's brilliant TED Talk. In this interview, we talk all about erotic self-awareness, how to inhabit our erotic bodies and discover our inner truths and start listening to these inner voices. It's a beautiful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Come on over to pleasuremechanics.com where you will find our complete podcast archive and join us at pleasuremechanics.com slash free to get started with our free online courses and dive a little deeper deeper with us. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Here is our interview with Dr. Alexandra Solomon about her new book, Taking Sexy Back. Yes, please. Here we go. Dr. Solomon, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. I'm so thrilled that you're here. For those who are not aware of your work yet, can you introduce yourself and the work you do in this world? Sure. My name is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I have been working as a clinical psychologist and uh, faculty member at Northwestern for a couple of decades now. And so I spend some of my week doing therapy with individuals and couples, and then some of my week um, teaching and training, both graduate students who are studying to be marriage and family therapists, um, as well as teaching undergraduate students. I do a a big relationship education course called um, Building Happy and Healthy, no, that's not true, Building (laughs) building, uh, Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. And And then I spend the rest of my time really translating clinical tools, um, research tools to the general public, whether that's through self-help books that I write or these conversations like I'm having with you. 
So that's really um, my work is, is I, I, I call myself a woman on a bridge. I'm bridging all different clinical and research and um, academia and general public. And that's my happy place. And I'm so thrilled to meet you on this bridge, Taking Sexy Back, your new book arrived on my doorstep. And by page six, I was doing praise hands around the room. <laughs> shouting to the rooftops with gratitude for this book that both honored the complexity of human sexuality, but then offered some clarity and some pathways forward and inward. And we'll talk about that kind of inward step into our sexuality. So your first book was very much relational about loving bravely. How did you come to write this second book and why taking sexy back? Why sexy? And what does that word mean for you in this book and in this work that you do? Right. So my, my first book, as you say, it was called Loving Bravely. And it was, you know, my, the sort of um, central centerpiece of the work that I do is helping people understand themselves in the context of intimate partnership. You know, intimate partnership, whether we are dating and falling in love or whether we are in year um, 22 of our intimate partnership, as I am with my husband, um, it's really easy to focus on the other person, what they're doing, what they're not doing. Um, that's sort of the nature of intimate partnership, I think. And so Loving Bravely, as well as the, the work that I do in my classrooms and my, my clinical office, is really taking people into themselves and understanding the lenses, the paradigms, the belief systems that we bring into intimate partnership and how that shapes how we experience, right? This idea that perspective shapes perception and that our willingness to look at the complexities we bring in then helps us open to deeper intimacy. Intimacy has a, a kind of curiosity and self-compassion. And even in writing that book, I was aware that this entire world of sex was, you know, was a, a, a place where all of that plays out with the volume cranked up even that much more loudly, right? Because it's, it's where things get really naked and really tender and those beliefs are so entrenched. And so that was where that second book was born. But it took me a while because I think that there's, you know, I became really aware of all these splits. And one of the splits in my part of the world is that we have couples therapists and we have sex therapists. And so it took me a while to, to authorize myself to step into this domain because I, have, I am a couples therapist. Um, who's had many conversations over the years with my students and my clients. But it took me a while to really feel like I could be authorized to write a, about the relational and the self aspects of, of sexuality. And I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that you did too. Um, as a sex educator, you know, we've been hands deep in sexuality for this past decade. And this book resonated for us so deeply. So you nailed it. <laughs> and I think what you nailed is this sense of sexuality is so complex. It's so multifaceted. And it is both deeply internal. We have this deeply individual relationship with our own sexuality. And so much of our sexual experience is born from there. And yet it is also so relational. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you call as relational self-awareness and this tension and dialogue between self and social 
that, as you said, is amplified on the sexual stage. Right, right, right. So relational self-awareness is exactly what we were saying before. It's this idea that um, I need to understand who I am and how I show up in my relationships. And if I'm not willing to do that, I'm going to be at risk of taking us again and again and again into the space of either blame or a, a space of shame. So either I'm going to put our dynamics on you and make you wrong, kind of get you to hold the bag, or I'm going to disappear from you because I'm going to swirl down the tubes into shame um, and, and really feel like I'm wrong and I'm broken and it's my history and it's my trauma that's causing our problems. So relational self-awareness helps me hold on to the, what I call the golden equation of love, that my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. And that is true whether we are, you know, kind of debating whose turn it is to give the baby a bath or whether we are talking about a discrepancy we're bumping into around sexual desire. It just, um, but then the cultural piece comes in because if the problem we're having is something around sexual desire and the challenges of negotiating sexuality over time in our partnership, we then bring in all the cultural loading, right? Like what it means to have grown up in this in this world of ours that tends towards being so sex negative that we don't have the tools we need to talk with care and vulnerability and honesty about what's happening for us as sexual beings, which is where you spend your time and the work that you do, right? Is helping people just kind of like look at how much shame we come by. Uh, we come by it really honestly, don't we? Like just, it just is, we get this inheritance of negativity that we didn't ask for, but it is ours then to um, take a look at and name and then process. And that's through that process, it, it allows us to choose something else, like to choose some voice around sex. Mm -hmm. And with your guidance, you bring these values to the surface of this process. And I wrote down self-awareness, self-compassion, and self-discovery. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Why is the call to self-compassion so important to you to kind of ring that bell over and over again for us, especially, you know, in all mindful practice, but especially when we're starting to look within and think about our own sexualities. You know, I, um, I want to go back and pull that thread that was about this word sexy, um, which yeah. we used in the title. So this is, um, uh, I think so much about, you know, women have, I think each of us, um, those of us who've been socialized in the feminine, we develop a particular relationship with that word sexy. And I think that's a really interesting point of self inquiry for somebody I think somebody who, who's been socialized, whether in the masculine or the feminine, but I think especially given the messages in a system of patriarchy around women as, as objects, um, kind of unpacking, what have you internalized about that word? What is your relationship to that word? And I think very often what we come to is a sense that it's a question, like, do you find me sexy? And that idea that our our value and our desirability around our sexuality is determined in the gaze of another. And that that creates the conditions then for sex as a performance. And, and then it kind of cuts us off from that experience of, of being sexual, right? Of this idea that my sexuality is, is mine to determine and mine to construct and mine to explore. Um, and in fact, we can't even get to 
I don't know how we could even be intimate with another unless we can really feel that sense of ownership and, um, and that it has to be done with self-compassion because so often, um, so often we've internalized messages, especially around our bodies that are really, really harsh. You know, that our bodies, um, we have such narrow ideas in our culture of who gets to be perceived as desirable and who gets to decide what is and isn't desirable. And so it has to be self-compassion that we come back to again and again about our bodies as delicious and whole as they are. And um, that that has to really guide this process. I think one of the things, you know, my te- I had this wonderful team of graduate students and undergraduate students that was with me as we worked on this book. And I was really struck by how much we as a community were really moving through our own grief and anger and sadness as we would um, take a look at these different aspects of sexuality and just how unfortunate it is that we that our sexuality has to oftentimes be like a reclamation rather than something that we kind of grow up with ease and flow right from the get-go. Yeah, I was talking to a friend recently about intergenerational trauma. And when we were looking at the history of sexuality, of sexual pleasure, let alone bodies, how can we expect ourselves to be born with agency, with access to pleasure, let alone access to ecstasy and these expanded states we seek. So this self-compassion is also this cultural compassion of, wow, this is a really new conversation about autonomy, about different relations between men and women, between people of all sexualities, allowing sexual expression to even be part of the cultural conversation is all really new. Um, and when we bring compassion to this conversation, it gives us much more space. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that, and that really big wide lens of like the big historical lens, like it is, it's a bridge, right? To go from that big historical lens to me and my bedroom, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. but that is so important because it does shape it. And it's a reminder again, that this is, I didn't ask for all of this cultural loading. Like I carry stuff that really, really isn't mine. It's been transmitted again and again and again, and it lives in me now. And it's mine to massage, transform, shed, but that, but it has to start from that place of like, okay, I didn't ask for this. Mm, thank you for that. Um, can we go back to this piece about shifting from performative sex into more of an experiential sex, a sex that you can show up for with your whole being? You do such a beautiful job shifting this language from you are sexy to your sexy, a sexy you can claim as your own. Can you talk a little bit about why that process is so important? in one's life and what are the after effects like how does going on this journey change and transform other arenas of our life what is that connection mm. i we had a book event on um on saturday and there was a gal in line and she came up with her book to have me sign it and she wanted me to sign it for her daughter who's 24 and she said um my daughter is just so lost right now. She's having such a hard time deciding and getting clear on any aspect of her life. And I hope this book serves her. And it was like this light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh, I get it. You know, this, this book is about sex, but it's also about holding on to 
all of the parts of who we are as people. And the, and the more we can do that, feel kind of whole on the inside and that all that we, that we are in communication with all the aspects of ourselves, that just helps us understand what's a yes and what's a no. Like, what am I choosing from the energy of love? Like, I'm choosing this because I want this. I'm choosing this because it speaks to me. I'm choosing this because I'm curious about it versus those choices we make from the energy of fear. I'm choosing this because I feel like I should. I'm choosing this because I'm scared if I don't do it now, it's never going to happen again. And I think that, I think so often those of us who've been socialized in the feminine, everybody else's voices get really loud, right? And we, and we're so, I think we can realize how much we're driven by that energy of fear. Like I really should, I really should go to the gym. I really should have sex with my partner. I really should, you know, say yes to this new job or whatever. And, and that's different than um, pausing and noticing the different pulls that are happening on the inside. And so to, to be able to bring that distinction of um, fear versus love into the sexual arena is also really important um, because because I think, you know, when we talk about these like generations of conditioning, that sex for women is a duty. It is a duty that we perform. And, and then now in the era, in this moment in time, I think with um, so much of, you know, there's, there's certainly our beautifully feminist, you know, produced erotica that I know you are, you know, you talk about and celebrate and support, but a lot of what we see in pornography kind of replicates that, right? It's, it's sex as a performance for somebody else. Um, that then how do we come back to, okay, what are the conditions where I would want to choose a sexual experience and how would I know? We even have, if I'm doing a workshop or speaking to people, especially who are dating and looking for intimate partnership, they will say like, is it okay to have sex on the first date? Or how long do I wait to have sex? As if I could give them any answer to that. But it makes mm -hmm. sense. It makes sense that's posed as a question because, because it's predicated upon this idea that somebody else needs to tell me because it's really, really radical to consider that I might figure out what are the conditions. Like that's, that's a mind shift to be like, I can't ever ask somebody else when should you have sex? Because I own my sexuality and I have to figure out for myself what are the conditions in which I want to open myself to a partner in that way. Yes. Do you think that impulse to want to be on script, to want to be normal, to know how other people are doing it and do it that way has to do with sexuality's connection to kinship and belonging? Like, what is this piece of us that... You know, we each kind of have our internal sexual landscape and yet we want to fit in and belong and not, um, mm. there's part of sexual shame tells us if they know what I truly want, they won't love me anymore. Where does that voice come from? Yeah, I think it is right. There's something and in, in a fear that a fear that somehow I am different and that's scary right that it's i need someone to give me the rules and the parameters and the boundaries because i'm kind of afraid of what's of how unruly my sexuality might be if it was unleashed mm. so just please tell me where where the guardrails are uh, i think it's some of both of that right and this idea that if 
I think that is like that's the nature of slut shaming, isn't it? This idea that we would otherize, marginalize, and silence um, women, especially who are perceived as just outside of the bounds, and that that's to be outside of the bounds is to risk being like put off to one side and shunned. Mm. I think it's maybe both, maybe some of both, right? Like the external piece is. I need to know what the lines are because I don't want you guys to exclude me. And then the interior piece, maybe I need to know what the lines are because if I really let myself go here, I may start to live without any lines. Like a fear of if I don't manage my own sexual appetite, it might be really, really unruly. And what do you say to that fear? Because we do hear this of if I trust my pleasure, if I go towards pleasure, if I let pleasure be my measure then I'll become an out of control hedonist and nothing else will matter. And yet you and I both know as you know, professionals, as mothers, um, there is a way to integrate this and actually allow sexuality to become fuel for the rest of our lives and not a distraction. How do we play that game? Right. My gosh, I just had a, a conversation recently um, about with a woman who was really struggling to in her intimate partnership she was just really bored and checked out of their um, erotic connection and in our conversation she flashed on this memory that she hadn't thought about in years of being 17 with an, with her boyfriend at the time in a sexual experience and just lost in her pleasure and she squirted with her orgasm and he shamed her mm. and he Maybe he shamed her because he's a really, you know, gnarly dude, but maybe he shamed her because he had really inadequate sex education and was very confused about what was happening. But regardless, his kind of freak out gave her the message that your sexuality, if it is not tamed, is going to freak everybody out. So it was like a mem, you know, it was in something that she had just really put away. Like she hadn't consciously thought about that. Um, but it was, it was a piece of her that she had locked down, you know, maybe in part because of, but likely in part because of that memory of just like, if I really let myself go, the other person is going to be grossed out or disturbed. Um, and so I think sometimes it go, it starts there, right? Like with our early, like what, like those conversations we might have with our 16, 17, eight, 18 year old selves or a 12 year old selves or whatever, like kind of going back to the beginning of what were my how did I relate to my early, you know, experiences of my sexuality? How did the people around me relate to that? Um, was I told that it was really dangerous? Um, because you're right that then that, that as we move into adulthood, it's, it is for us to cultivate an honor because it does become, it does become fuel and it's the erotic is our life force and it's our creativity. Um, it's our aliveness. And so to that there is a, a shift from fearing it to trusting it. Mm. And this sense of trust, internal trust, trusting our felt senses is something we develop over time with practice. Um, what are some of your favorite practices that you do either with clients or that you suggest in your courses to help us develop internal felt sense and a trust of our felt sense? Well, one practice I think is, is noticing our stress level and what is blocking uh, self-care. 
you know, I think that 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 it's really easy to go kind of full tilt all the time and letting ourselves get exhausted and depleted and the the tie between our sexual desire and stress is really strong, right? For many of us, stress acts as a break. If we think about the sort of Emily Nagoski accelerator and break model for sexual desire and our stress level is going to act as, um, as a break. And it may be that we have stories in our head that, that that's okay. It's okay to put sex in the back burner because we must be accomplishing and doing and one more this and one more that and one more hour. Um, and I think there is certainly a reality to that, that we live in a, in a time of deep income inequality and many of us are needing to work extreme hours in order to um, ensure that we are taking care of our, our needs and our family's needs. But just noticing what are the ways that we may be adding to that and kind of going above and beyond being driven by this sense that like our, our work is our um, worth. I know that I'm certainly um, guilty of getting into this, of just compromise, kind of compromising and sacrificing the things that I know nourish me, exercise and sleep and good food and spending time on all of those things are, are what creates the conditions for me to feel like I have access and permission to also support my sexuality and my erotic health and connection. Um, so that's some of those like really basic foundational things that we may not think affect us in the bedroom, but I think they really, really do. Mm -hmm. And then I always encourage, like, if we notice the after effect, the after a glow of even something as simple as a slightly prolonged shower, a walk with your partner to talk things out, if we notice and install, as we've been talking about, um, the effects of this and then thank ourselves, have an internal sense of gratitude of I'm really grateful to have taken that time and I'm noticing the effects. It kind of self-motivates further practice. Mm -hmm. I was just, um, I was just working with a couple on this recently where she, um, she really was asking for more connection with her partner as a way of um, helping them move into a neurotic space. And I think that her partner was hearing her saying like that he had to be quote unquote, like a good boy in order to kind of earn access to her. And it became this real rift in their relationship. And I think that's that what she was really trying to say is like, this is how I nourish connection with you and connection with myself. And so let's work together to create the connection, the, the conditions where my erotic self can come forward more. It's not a like, you need to earn access to me. It really is like, this is what I know to be true about my connection to my desire. And will you come with me and support this with me? And as you're saying, like that walk together is, um, is, is about just like celebrating like, okay, this is how, what we can do to support us, to support connection that then for some of us, it's the connection that then opens the door to, um, to the erratic. Mm. That's such a beautiful story too, of how by developing a more internal sense of our sexuality, we have so much more to bring to potential partners, to our long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. um, that Venn diagram gets so much richer and brighter as we go inside and discover what's mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. 
Will you say one thing more about we've a few times in this conversation, both of us are saying, you know, when you drop inside, when you go inside, scan inside, what are we feeling for there? How would you guide someone who's new to this? Like, what am I doing when I am mm. feeling inside? Mm. It is, um, it is a, a stepping away and turning attention inward and quieting down the thoughts. So it's, I often start with just some like deep breaths, like in through my nose and out through my mouth and a scan of um, like sort of I go top to bottom, sort of like top to bottom, where am I holding tension and just like getting into those um, five senses and quieting down the thoughts, like what the Buddhists would call sort of like that monkey that monkey brain, right? Where we're kind of scrolling from this to this, to this, to this, and slowing that process down. Notice, because when we do that, we notice that we are having thoughts versus we are the thoughts. And then it sometimes is, especially around this no, the way that I feel when there's a no I'm not saying is I feel it in my gut, but we different people may hold their unspoken no in different places. It may be in their chest, like a tightness in the chest. For me, it's like, feels like a twist kind of in my gut. And it's sort of then sometimes asking like, okay, so hello, twist in the gut. Like, what are you holding? What do you want me to know? Kind of asking our body. Like, I think we, we imagine that we are like these top down creatures that our thoughts drive the whole thing. And that checking in that body scan that paying attention to where the tension is is going from the body wisdom up like so and then we're asking like what is this tightness in my chest telling me what does it want to say so it's kind of that listening from like the more base level of the body and then attending to that and allowing that to be a source of information versus this idea that we have to think our way through um a decision or a challenge. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. And it reminds us that our feelings, we can feel the feelings of our feelings. Mm -hmm. And so this, when a no is present, what does that feel like versus a yes? We can do so much of this through fantasy alone, engaging the imagination and then checking in the body or in small moments out in the world as we notice, we gain literacy and these voices get louder, I think is one thing people need to hear because sometimes it's like, well, I don't feel anything. Um, and it's a process. It's a practice to trust these voices, to hear them. And as you said, to quiet the external noise so we can mm -hmm, hear. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to those who, when we're choosing to focus on our own experience, instead of finding pleasure or curiosity, even we start finding um, numbness or sadness or grief welling up. Um, how do we ride that edge of allowing these feelings, feeling the feelings, but also kind of keeping ourselves regulated? Right, right, right. right. I, um, I had a message a couple of months ago from a woman who had been um, had survived a sexual trauma in her childhood. And she, she shared a story with me that was just so sacred and so precious for her to let me know about that she had gone through a process of, um, of, of prosecuting her abuser 
And she said that the day of the sentencing, she came home and she masturbated Mm -hmm. and she wept. And it was a really, really powerfully healing experience for her. It brings tears to my eyes as I even say it out loud to you right now. And that, that, you know, we do have these stories, I think, of which, which emotions we're allowed to pair with pleasure. And for her, that was such a moment of reclamation and healing, right? Was to pair her own experience of bringing herself pleasure and reminding herself that trauma doesn't break us. It may disconnect us, but it doesn't break us. And that she could have um, pleasure and sadness and um, grief all in the same place. And that, that wouldn't mean that that was all going to be together in that space forever, but in that moment it was. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it is right that that we want to be mindful to like think about a bell-shaped curve and be in some sort of sweet space, right? And that we can give ourselves permission that if there's a lot coming up for me, I can slow down, I can pause, I can stop. Um but I can also just kind of stay present to it and trust that emotions have a time stamp, right? They they are like waves, they will rise and they will fall. And that when we are, when there's trauma to really learn, I think one of the um, important skills that, that survivors of trauma begin, um, learn is when am I, when am I present? When am I absent? Right. Sort of dissociation. What does dissociation feel like to me? Mm. And, and knowing how to bring our, bring our, bring ourselves back to a place of safety when we feel ourselves beginning to dissociate. And so that would be, I think, like we talk about that in the in the book that um, allowing ourselves to pause a sexual experience, whether it's by ourselves or with a partner, as as we notice ourselves dissociating, because the dissociation is a a coping tool. It's, it was at some point in time an incredibly important coping tool, and that in our healing, what we can say to ourselves is, "Sweet darling, love me." I feel you slipping away and you don't need to. I can make you safe in this moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So treating that dissociation as, as as that part of us that's saying like, it's too much for me. Okay. So then we can stop. So then we stop for now and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I hear you that I think for those of us who are doing a bit more of the self-help and distant, you know, distant healing through books, through courses, um, I think we do need to be talking about trauma and being aware that um, there's always, always a space for therapy, right? Like in like face-to-face, old school, organic um, therapy, psychotherapy with a clinician who's trained to support healing trauma. Mm -hmm. So I think both those things, I don't, I think that therapy on its own, you know, probably isn't enough for trauma recovery. I think these, all these different pieces, like there's lots of of elements and and um, that survivors of trauma can really make use of on their journeys. And so there's we don't have to say that it's only one way or the other. But I hear you that I try to be really thoughtful also when I'm in these conversations or writing a self help book that it's different than therapy. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, the book is full of self reflections and practices and ways of engaging with ourselves to discover who we are as sexual beings. What is one question you want everyone or you invite everyone to pause and ask of themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, one that I really like is what is the no that I, that I am needing to say that I haven't said? Like, what is the, Mm -hmm. I think, especially for those of us 
we've been talking a lot about those who've been socialized in the feminine, you know, where, where we are say, feel driven by sort of obligation and responsibility. And what is the quiet no that is kind of hanging out in the corner that is um, asking for my attention? That's one question I think that can be just a, that can be a, an important way of asking it, like kind of scanning on the inside and um, where, where is a place where maybe I'm letting my boundary be a bit looser than is good for my health and is good for the health of whatever the relationship and how might there be a no that would, would serve everybody a bit better. Mm. Your book is such a beautiful guide in that discernment process and is a really, um, I think a rich practice guide. There's so much within these pages so you can engage with the ideas, but then also take the time, drop into your own life and engage these ideas with your own body and see what emerges for you. Mm -hmm. So thank you for putting together this resource guide. It is a really beautiful offering. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for making the space that you make to allow these conversations to happen. I think it's so, so, so important. And a podcast is just such a nice way to be able to like listen in, gain some knowledge in a way that's really um, non-threatening and safe. So thank you for the work that you do. Mm-hmm. One image I love is couples will listen to the same episode while walking through the city streets together. So they have kind of the same audio scape and are, can exchange knowing glances <laughs> or send each other notes as they listen to episodes. Um, and this is all about having the conversation. So whether you're reading the book, engaging in the podcast, or engaging in our online courses, this conversation happens over time. Look in the show notes page. We have a special offer. If you buy Dr. Solomon's new book and send us a quick screenshot, we will send you a coupon code for the online course of your choice so you can engage these practices in our online practice community together with other pleasure seekers from all around the world. Thank you so much, Dr. Solomon, for joining us on Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Thank you for having me. Check the show notes page for more from Dr. Solomon, and we will have another episode for you next week on Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Cheers.